Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Friday, February 16th. Today, Sun writer Kevin Simpson chats with an independent journalist in Boulder who has written a book about measures all over the world regarded as solutions to climate-related disasters, but that have sometimes led to unintended consequences. Before we begin, Colorado Sun News may be free, but it is not free to produce, thanks to our members who make our journalism possible. This week only, first-time members can join us with a special 20% off introductory rate for select membership packages. Visit coloradosun.com slash save20 for more details. Again, that's coloradosun.com slash save, S-A-V-E, 20, T-W-E-N-T-Y. Members power the sun, and we are grateful for your support. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this date, in February 1865, Captain Silas Sewell, a Maine-born abolitionist and former ally of John Brown, testified before a congressional panel in Denver against his former commander, John Shivington, detailing the Sand Creek Massacre. Despite his military service in Colorado and participation in peace talks with Native Americans, Sewell refused to join Shivington's massacre of November 1864, condemning the brutal killing of innocents. His damning testimony highlighted the massacre's barbarity, leading to Chivington's condemnation, although no punishment was issued due to his prior resignation. Sewell's brave stance against the atrocity led to his murder in Denver on April 23, 1865, presumed to be an act of retribution by supporters of Chivington. His murder remains unsolved. Before we continue, the Colorado Sun has virtual and in-person events all year long. Join conversations on politics, healthcare, the environment, transportation, education, and much more. Sign up for the free events monthly email so you can be the first in line for registration. Visit coloradosun.com events today. Next, our feature story. Welcome to the end of the work week, Colorado. Joining us today on the podcast is Stephen Robert Miller an award-winning journalist based right here in Colorado, where he was a fellow at the University of Colorado's Center for Environmental Journalism, and he still teaches off and on at CU Boulder. His work has appeared in National Geographic, Washington Post, The Guardian, Sierra Magazine, and many others. Uh, But today, we're going to talk about his new book. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. So the the book is called Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. Uh, This really is a a book for the times we live in, but while we're all rightfully talking about how to push back against the impacts of climate change, this really goes in a slightly different direction. Tell us about the book. Tell us about the book and uh, particularly the, the circumstances that led you to pursue the topic. So I've been a environmental journalist for a lot of years now and kept coming across stories where people were having to kind of make up for past solutions, like things that they thought that they had fixed years and years, generations even ago. And now they're realizing that actually their fixes weren't such a great fix. The solution was not a solution that they thought it was. Um, and a lot of times these issues were then being compounded by climate change more recently. So, I mean, you kind of look around the world and you see people all over the place, building dams, putting up seawalls and levees, embankments, desalination plants, you name it. 
Um, I think we've come to a place where we're recognizing finally that we're not going to outrun the impacts of climate change. You know, that there's a lot we can still do to lessen those impacts that we need to do. But the reality is that a lot of these things are already baked in. And that means we're going to have to adapt. And so adaptation, you know, means in, it can in many ways mean altering your landscape or trying to alter your own lifestyle. You have to kind of choose between the two of them. Um, but what I started seeing was, you know, we're, we're now rushing to it, to adapt all over the world and that can cause its own problems. Like those people that I had written about as a journalist who had tried to fix things in the past and it came back to bite them. We run the risk of doing the same things now, uh, with climate adaptation. And so I wanted to explore, uh, that issue and try to, you know, offer some information for people who might be thinking about ways to adapt at home. I thought it was interesting. You, you've mentioned that, uh, it was, Oddly enough, Colorado's housing market that sort of put you uh, on the road to this sub subject. That was a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, so I came out to uh, to Colorado for the Ted Scripps uh, Fellowship at CU Boulder and decided to stick around. I have been living in Seattle. I grew up in Arizona, but I'm living in Seattle. And after one winter here in Colorado where, you know, it's like 10 degrees, but the sun is out, I decided <laughs> there's no way I'm going back to Seattle, you know. But anyway, I was thinking about maybe going back home to Tucson, Arizona, where I grew up. And, you know, the, the housing market in Colorado is just so insane uh, that maybe living in Tucson made a lot more sense. But then I started thinking more and more about it and thinking about, you know, obviously the water issue is something that should be foremost in everyone's mind there, but often isn't. But it's not just water. It's also the heat and air quality, you know, um, and the energy system, the energy grid down there. There's the, the, the desert is not a very hospitable place, uh, which should seem pretty obvious. And maybe to some people it does, but... Still, it's one of the most popular places in the country for new folks to move into. Yeah. And so I started thinking more and more about you know, my decisions about where I want to live and thinking about other people moving into places like Tucson or Phoenix and, or Vegas or Florida. And it's, it made me start thinking a lot more about adaptation. Well, and you, you said something really interesting in regard to this subject, that uh, maybe a century of technological adaptation has made most of us blind to the realities of where we live. Can you expand a, a little bit on that? Because we, we see that here in Colorado as well. Absolutely. You know, that's, um, when I was thinking about moving to Tucson, I'm thinking about, it seems like it makes a lot of sense. The housing market is good. I, I, I think I comment like the food is, in Tucson is phenomenal, but there's all these other risks. And you start thinking like, why then do I feel like maybe this is a good idea given all those other risks? And uh, my research when I was doing the fellowship at CU, I came across a story of the tsunami that hit Japan in 2011. And uh, long story short, one of the things that happened there uh, was that the seawalls that were built to protect people from the tsunami actually ended up causing some people to stay put in their homes to not flee as quickly as they should have. And subsequent research showed that the death toll had actually highest in places where people had new big seawalls protecting them. And so what we discovered then was that the seawalls, this infrastructure and an adaptation to a disaster, right, had given people this false sense of security that had actually maybe impacted, you know, caused people to die. Um, and so I kind of, in the in Over the Seawall, my book, I extrapolate on that idea and think about all the infrastructure that's been built in Arizona, in the front range of Colorado, you know, in, in New York City and in Miami, all the infrastructure that's been built in those places to make us kind of blind to the risk, to that wave that's coming in. And tsunami is a very obvious thing, but you know, uh, climate change is even, it's sneakier, it's slow onset, it, it's, it comes up on you fast. And you mentioned the uh, uh, the tsunami, and I, I want to, at this point, uh, tell our listeners that on Sunday, our Sunlit feature spotlights an excerpt from the book that 
addresses uh, th- that ex- exact uh, thing that you talked about, the, the tsunami and, and its impact on Japan and the, the maladaptation uh, of, of the seawall. And we've also got a, a nice Q&A with you as well. But the excerpt looks at that 2011 earthquake and tsunami. But, you know, it's, it's not just the technology of the perceived solutions that caught your interest. You also found yourself fascinated by the people you met as well. And your research took you in a lot of directions and down a lot of rabbit holes, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons you write a book, because you can't sum it all up in a magazine article or something, right? Um, when I started writing over the seawall, when I started researching it, I was really thinking I was going to focus on the technology side, the concrete is a big issue there, right? Things like rebar and copper wire and all that jazz. Um, but as I started traveling, this book took me you know, to uh, Japan, to Bangladesh, to back to my home in Southern Arizona. Um, and so I was going to research other parts of the world where I had, where you know, it's all kind of feeding into this idea. Um, as I was traveling and talking to people, I just got really fascinated by the stories. And I started thinking more about the people who have to live behind this infrastructure. And I realized that that's really who I want to write the book for. People who are living with this infrastructure, the people who might end up living with this infrastructure here at home, you know, when you're, when the city council is considering a big plan for a new desal plant or build a wall to stop, you know, on, on the coast or something. I wanted to write it for the, for the people who are going to consider those decisions and have to live with the implications of those decisions. Because that's the thing with this, you know, researchers call it maladaptation, which is kind of wonky. In the book, I call it bad adaptation. It's maybe a minor improvement. You know, it's it's not necessarily referring to an adaptation or a solution that just outright fails. Sometimes these, these solutions actually do solve some problem, but they cause subsequent you know, negative impacts down the road. And so I really got fascinated by writing about the stories of the people who were living with those downstream impacts. And as you mentioned, you went all over the world for this uh, research, and you, you overcame some significant hurdles uh, in in the course of researching the book. I, and I think most authors that we've talked to on the podcast who've published in the last couple of years have talked about the pandemic and how COVID affected their work. So that obviously overlaps what you were doing. And then on top of that, a lot of your reporting took place overseas in countries where you also encountered a, a language barrier. How did you deal with sort of that double whammy of COVID and uh, restrictions and language? <laughs> I mean, I had a contract, so I had to deliver. <laughs> I think there was a lot of times along the way where if I hadn't signed my name in blood, there's a good chance I might have just walked away from it. But no, I mean, it, the pandemic was brutal. I, uh, I couldn't get into Japan for a long time. In fact, I ended up having to write the book in reverse. The book, the order goes Japan, Bangladesh, Arizona. The idea is you learn from these examples of other places around the world, and then I, I bring those ideas and those lessons back to my home in Arizona. I had this idea that if you're going to travel around the world and tell people that, hey, you're doing this wrong, you know, then you better be willing to come back and look yourself in the mirror. Um, and so that's what I do in over the seawall. But I wouldn't have been able to get it. I, I couldn't get into Japan until the, the last. So I had to, even though it's the first section of the book, I wrote at last. And I was only able to get in because of a, a, a man there by the name of Sebastian, who was a, he studies death and grief and burial rituals. And he was interested in what I was working on. He helped me get into the country on an academic visa. But then, yeah, the language barrier and the cultural barrier, you know, it's, um, if I had my way, I would have spent years in these places, um, living with people and getting to know the culture better. But you were working on a book, you know, the whole thing took maybe four years. And so you don't have that amount of time. And so I really relied on, on local, uh, translators and guides who were able to clue me in on all the things that I was missing through the, through the uh, through the language barrier. And it was certainly a challenge, but 
I think it's also one of the as- one of the most interesting aspects of Lower the Seawall is the fact that you get to travel to these different parts of the world and see how people have dealt with similar issues. You know how they ultimately run into the same problems that we run into here at home, and you know how they have or have not done a great job of dealing with that. So one thing that I think was interesting, you pointed out that no one set out to cause the climate crisis, but over generations, perhaps people didn't stop to ask all the right questions. What do, what do you hope readers will take away from this book? Is there a, a lesson moving forward here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the simple lesson is we're not going to solve this problem with the same thinking that we used to cause it. That might seem kind of obvious to a lot of people, but that's, look around the world, that's often what we're doing. And I think I worked as an editor at a magazine for years where our focus was solutions journalism. So all of our stories came at the problem, it came at the, the issue from the perspective of us writing about a solution to the problem. And I have a lot of respect for solutions. I obviously think we need them. Um, but I've also seen over the years too many solutions that are half-baked, you know, that people kind of glom onto because they're told by someone, whether it's a politician or as somebody who in an industry who has something to gain from it, you know that this is going to solve their problems, or they're just so desperate for an answer to an intractable problem that they want they want someone to come by and tell them how to fix it. And so they just accept the solution that's given to them. And with this book, I'm hoping to write you know, a disaster story that people find interesting, that they just want to get into and read about, but also to kind of give people the context to even ask this, to even know what questions to ask when they're confronted with simple solutions to complex problems. Stephen, you've obviously uh, you've written a lot for magazines uh, over the years. Um, how is that different from what you uh, encountered this time with you know writing a book and, and sort of living with a subject for as long as you did? You have to be obsessed with the book idea. I've realized, you know, like a magazine story, you get onto it and you write it, and you can kind of move on. You have to because you got to go get paid again. Um, but writing a book, it's like, this is something that you, you, you live and breathe and eat every single day. And I'm now the book has now been out since October and I'm still thinking about things in there, still wishing that I had written about other stories or written things in a different way. Um, I still feel like, I think the most important thing is I still feel like I'm coming to understand the topic. And I think that's the thing about writing a book is you really want to get so deep into this idea because you, I wanted to understand this thing from every potential angle. Um, and that's something you don't really get the chance to do in a magazine story. Um, even so with the book, you know, the book is 75,000 words or something. Um, and there are still a lot of people and a lot of ideas that I had to cut because there just wasn't enough space for it. Yeah. Are you thinking in terms of a, a follow-up book perhaps? Is, is this maybe spawn some new ideas, uh, or, you know, thoughts about how you might approach this to once again, sort of underscore that point about maladaptation? Yeah, you know the thing about I think the thing about over the seawall that draws me most is the the control of nature aspect of it. I don't know if any of the listeners have read the book The Control of Nature by John McPhee, um, one of my favorite books. And as I was putting together this idea for over the seawall, I read The Control of Nature again, and it kind of helped me form this idea and think about how I could present the idea, the, the stories that I was thinking about. That's the thing that really, I think, drives me is this co- the cultural stories of people trying to control their environments and how you know complex and dangerous that can be. Um, and so I'm going to keep hammering on that. I don't think I'm going to write another book exactly about adaptation to climate change, um, but I will keep hammering on the control of nature idea from different perspectives. And I'm still writing about adaptation for, for magazines now with all the, the stories that came to me in the process of researching this book that didn't end up in the book itself. So. Fantastic. Well, once again, our our guest has been 
journalist and author Stephen Robert Miller, and his book is Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. It's available at fine bookstores everywhere, and you can, again, read an excerpt in our Sunlit feature starting Sunday. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks so much, Kevin. Appreciate it. And listeners, if you enjoy listening to The Daily Sunup, please leave a review on whatever platform you use to tune in. Have a great weekend. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. A weekly newspaper in Colorado Springs that shut down last year amid overwhelming debt will resume publishing in the spring. The Colorado Springs Independent, known to its readers as The Indy, is being revived by two local investors who announced Thursday they have purchased the publication. J.W. Roth and Kevin O'Neill said they bought The Indy and the Colorado Springs Business Journal in an effort to keep both publications in print and under local ownership. The Indy is widely viewed as a left-leaning alternative to the city's daily, The Gazette. The new owners say The Indy will retain that progressive voice. A new study says a plan to charge fees to Colorado businesses that generate consumer packaging could more than double the amount of material that's diverted from landfills. And recycling advocates say the gain will come for just fractions of a penny per consumer item. The state health department is taking public comments on the draft assessment of Colorado's so-called producer responsibility fee. Once state officials approve the study, a governing board for packaging producers will spend the next year creating a detailed plan for the statewide packaging fees and recycling program. Colorado launched a new rental assistance program this week after eviction filings reached record numbers in some regions last year. The state will use $30 million approved by the legislature in November to fund the temporary program aimed at keeping people in their homes. The Colorado Department of Local Affairs launched the first pre-application process Thursday through the Temporary Rental Assistance Grant Program. The first round of pre-applications will remain open until 5 p.m. Tuesday. Coloradans will have another chance to apply when the process reopens on the 15th day of each month. That's the same day landlords typically send demand for rent notices. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. This is Michael Booth. And this is John Ingold. We cover health and climate here at the Colorado Sun. Every week, John and I work together to send out a newsletter to our premium members called The Temperature. In this newsletter, we share our latest reporting about health and climate and how they intersect issues like forever chemicals, healthcare's rising costs, and the lingering effects of the pandemic. The Temperature is one of our weekly newsletters available to members at the premium level. To sign up, head to coloradosun.com slash join. Not only will you be able to sign up for The Temperature and our other premium newsletters, but you'll be supporting the Colorado Sun as a member, and thanks for doing that.